Gratus in Conlagri Ales, podcast de linguis constructis hominibusque qui illas faciunt. Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me down the road away is William Annis. Hello. And today we were going to talk about grammatical number. This is a topic that we both thought we had actually already done, so we were going to be doing like a revisit, but apparently we have do not have an episode dedicated to number. We have, um, we, I think, William, we've just like mentioned it a lot in a lot of other places because it pops up as everywhere. Yeah, as interacting with other things all the time. So maybe that was what confused us. <laughs> we have been doing this a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're actually just going to go through and get into a lot of number. Um, now, we have some online resources that we'll link to. A lot of the stuff I'll be talking about, I pulled from um, the Cambridge uh, textbook on number, which is by our friend Greville Corbett. Um, some people who've been listening a long time remember that I recommended his book on gender, um, the, another Cambridge textbook. And... The one on number is good as well. I basically I borrowed it last night and I have spent a lot of last night and this morning just like reading and reading and reading several sections. I didn't get through the whole thing, but I got some high points. And then uh William has some more diverse sources too. And uh I think um I'll have to check. You might be able to get that from the Conlangers lending library if you're interested. I used, uh, I got a lot of information from volume three of Dixon's Basic Linguistic Theory. Mm -hmm. He has an entire chapter on number, and I do know that those books are available from the the Conlang Lending Library. So this would be from volume three. Right, of Dixon's. And uh, there's an interesting thing in that that's not in other materials that we'll cover in a minute. But um, let's just get started. With what are your your first decisions to make when you're building a number system? And basically, what distinctions do you want to make? So, first of all, you don't really need number at all. I don't think it's that commonly attested to have a language with absolutely no number distinctions. But it is, but you do find a lot of languages where it's very restricted. Like in Mandarin, it's only obligatory on pronouns, optional on nouns referring to humans, right? Um, the, so you can have number B kind of a restricted category. You could probably do without it. There's arguments that there are languages like, uh, apparently Piraha is argued to have no number. Um, the source of all the uh, all the uh, exceptions to rules that you ever find. <laughs> um, so it's possible not to have it, but 
if you're going to, you know, do number, and most languages probably are going to want to do it, you can have basically just singular and plural. That's what English has. That's what Mandarin has. That's what many, many languages have. And so that's just the most basic system is you have singular and plural and Usually your singular form is going to be a basic form, and then the plural is going to be marked somehow. Uh, we'll get into how uh, that can be broken, but um, at least on most nouns it's going to work that way. Uh, we'll get into how you can have uh, odd um, differences there. Once you are saying, okay, singular and plural, there are languages that distinguish dual number, which means exactly two of something. So, you know, if you have just singular and plural, you'd have singular is one and plural is more than one or two or more. There's actually, apparently there are languages that, that treat that a little differently. Um, uh, but uh, if you have a dual system, uh, You'd have singular, dual, plural, and so you'd have one, two, and then three or more. Uh, and then you can also have trial, which is exactly three. So you get, um, again, that goes with singular, dual, and plural. So you get, you know, one, two, three, and then more than three uh, or four or more. Uh, so there are... There have been languages that have argued to have a quadral number that's exactly four, but most of the arguments about that are are kind of shaky. And at least the languages that have examined been examined that supposedly have quadral number, a lot of times it seems like it's more like what will we uh, the next option you can have is apocal. Uh, which is a few of something. Sometimes when people talk about the Pockel, which is spelled P-A-U-C-A-L, by the way, um, there's an attempt to assign an exact number range to that, mm-hmm. like, you know, three to five. But in most languages, or certainly the ones that Dixon found, makes him claim that all languages that have a Pockel number, that number range has to do with some point of comparison. So if you're talking about a family, then Pockel may be, a, you know, a number between three and five or six or whatever. Um, and then plural is for seven and above. Whereas if you're talking about an entire village, it will take a lot more people before you finally jump over to the plural. So Pockel is rarely a fixed range with relationship to the plural. It has to do with those relationships in uh, in what it is you're counting, basically. Yeah. Right. You you might, if you look at grammars of a language that has a pockle, you might see people talk about, oh, pockle is up to six or up to ten. But uh, what you just said, William, makes a lot more sense to me is that it's, um, to use a, a semantics term, it's sort of like a, an, a scalar implicature, right? It's, right. It's yes. relative to what you would expect uh, as terms of, in terms of size of groups and such. Exactly. 
And Paco can go along with dual and trial, or it can be, uh, you can have a system that's singular, Paco and plural. So that's the, the thing. So dual and trial, those, that's, that's as far as we know, as high as you go with exact numbers. Maybe, you know, since we're conlangers, you can be a little speculative, speculative and say, okay, I'll add a quadrille. Or, I mean, or if you don't care about being naturalistic, you could just go up, like, to, like, 10 or something. But uh, <laughs> most natural and most realistic for what we know about how language works is you can have a dual and trial. And then the pockle can go with that or with just a singular plural system. Another... So- hmm? Were you going to mention another split, or were you moving on to a new subtopic? Oh, I was moving on to the next, the next one. Okay, I'm just going to talk about markedness a little bit. So George mentioned earlier that when you have a, a simple, uh, singular plural system, the singular is usually less marked than the plural. That is, the word will be shorter; it will be missing something, um, such as a plural suffix. Mm-hmm. In general, singular is least marked then plural, then come the dual and the trial and pockel and all the rest. In general, singular and plural are the most simple. And then as you add these other things, um, they tend to be more marked mm-hmm. or at least, or at least as marked as the plural. Right. Um, so I just wanted to mention that you don't typically have a situation where you have uh, singular, which is just a plain stem, and then the dual, which just has a little tiny hint of a thing, and then the plural has a heavier or more marked um, affix to mark plural. It typically goes the other way. The dual, the trial, etc., are typically more marked yeah. uh, than the singular. Although, um, one thing that you can see is, like, you often will see dual and trial historically derived from two and three. Exactly. And even in systems where you have dual trial and pockel, you end up with, like, dual is derived from two, trial is derived from three, and then pockel is derived from four, which um, may be something that misleads people into thinking that there's a quadril sometimes. Um, but uh, but uh, that's, that's an interesting place you can look for a historical source. And then another distinction I want to make is we've been talking so far about singular versus plural. There are some languages where it makes more sense to speak of non-plural and plural. For example, Dixon says that Turkish, an unmarked stem, is indefinite as to number. You can mark number on it. There is a plural, but there are certain circumstances where what an English speaker would say, oh, this is a singular, that that is an incorrect interpretation, that a plural reading is possible for a bare stem in some of these languages. Also, we've talked about singular, dual, plural. Um, You might have some parts of the grammar where the dual and plural distinction collapses, and there it makes sense to talk about non-singulars. Yeah. Now, let's let's talk about that, like, non-plural distinction real quick. There are there are languages where the singular can be like that can be more like non-plural. There are also languages it's a little bit less common but there are languages where the plural can have that 
meaning of not distinguishing number. There are also languages that actually have an unmarked number that's just called that you would call the general. That's just the this is not marked for number. Then they have a marking for singular and a marking for plural. Right. So that's another thing that you can have is is you have you can have this general number and then mark for singular, mark for plural. Um, uh, Corbett Corbett uh, talks a lot about um, different languages that have a general or that he he talks about like that sort of non-plural as like general being fused with singular or something, but. The right. same basic principle as what you were talking about. And, and and there are some languages where you might speak of something called a singulative, which uh, grabs things. This often has, so for example, Welsh has a bunch of collective nouns. For example, moch for pigs is more basic than the singular form, a mochen. So that suffixes have been added to select a singular entity. And sometimes people will talk about the singulative um, right when when languages have that yeah and singulative basically as far as i can tell it just means a marked singular yeah so like and when you have this uh like a a a a, a singulative versus some some collective noun that's not going to ever be the default that's going to be some subset of nouns that act that way right Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, in Welsh, pigs is one example, but um, generally it's not going to be the same thing. Um, there are a couple of like subcategories you can get into. The, this will lead into that. Um, there's another wrinkle. You can have languages that have a like a, a, a pockle and a greater pockle where it's like, okay, we have a few things and then slightly more things, and then you have plural. Uh, you can also have things that languages that have a lesser plural and a greater plural. And the greater plural, it varies from language to language what it can be. Sometimes it's just an overabundance of things. Sometimes it's uh, all of something. Uh, but it's it's generally, you know, it's, you know, marking that it's much bigger than just what we would normally call plural. And um, that circling back around in Arabic, you have just like in Welsh, you have some of these collective nouns that have a marked singular uh, singulative. They also are marked for a greater plural. So, so, you know, by default they're plural, but on both ends you can get, okay, just one of them or, uh, uh, a huge number of them. In case Arabic plurals weren't already complicated enough. Yes, well, <laughs> the, 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 the broken plurals are a whole other matter. <laughs> so that gets you into the, the basic idea of what you can do. You can just do singular plural. Uh, you could add in dual and trial in there. You could add in a pocket in there. You could have either the singular or plural be like a general rather than actually singular or plural. You could have a third general in there, or you can divide things up into lesser and greater uh, pockle, lesser and greater plural. 
And there These are probably are, some languages in Papua Guinea that have done something different no one has seen yet. Possibly. <laughs> um, there are the, we'll, we'll get into even more things as we go along, but the, there are a lot um, in fact, there are a lot of uh, different things you can do. Right now, um, William, you have some things about like where number is marked. Right. So we've been talking about all of these distinctions, but the question is where are those distinctions present? Um, uh, in Dixon's sort of light theory theoretical framework says that number is realized on core arguments of the verb. That is either a noun phrase, a free pronoun, or person affixes on the verb. That's where number shows up, basically. It can show up in other places, but those are the core things he's talking about. It's important to mention that number marking does not have to be attached to the noun. If you have a complex noun phrase like noun, adjective, 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 the plural marking might come at the very end as a clinic on the entire noun phrase rather than what we expect from Indo-European languages where number marking is attached to everything, um, nouns and adjectives that agree with them. Um, as I said, free pronouns uh, are most likely to, to have number marking, even if the language doesn't care about number. Otherwise, person affixes on verbs. In some languages, the only clue about what's going on in terms of number. As George said, number need not be marked at all on your nouns. Mandarin is like that. Um, or it can be marked in multiple places like um, Latin or any other Indo-European language and lots of other languages. Yeah. Um, just uh, noting, you said person affixes on verbs. They can be a little also disentangled from the person affixes a little bit. Yep. Um, uh, people, listeners will know I'm 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 learning Ho Chunk, and in Ho Chunk, it's there are the person affixes for um, like actor and experiencer, but there are separate plurals that they still have a person distinction. There's there's we for speech act participants and then ire for third person, but it's not, it's a little bit separated. Right. And you can get languages where you just have some suffix that goes on the verb that says one of the arguments is one or both of the arguments is plural. Um, so in an intransitive verb, that's not at all confusing, but in an intransitive verb, you could either have a plural subject or a plural object, or both could be plural. Um, with some languages defaulting to a preferred interpretation when it's not clear. <clears throat> and your pronouns might make different number distinctions than your nouns. Yes. In uh, ancient Greek, for example, or, or some of the Indo-European languages, while there were du dual verb forms, in some places you would get dual nouns had plural verb forms, for example. Yeah. One thing... Um you can think about too is that if the um, if uh, the the um, there is a, a split where some things are marked for plural and not other things, it usually will follow the like the agency hierarchy or the animacy hierarchy. Right. So that means first person, second person, third person pronouns uh, going to uh, humans, then animates, then then inanimates. You know, you'll have you'll draw the line somewhere around there, and then things before that 
get number marking. Things after that don't get mark, number marking. Right. Um, an example of, uh, I brought up at the top of the show is in Mandarin, number marking is obligatory on the pronouns. It's optional, not very commonly used, but optional on human nouns. Um, but, you know, anything else doesn't can't get plural marking. Right. In, um, in, in Dixon's book, he organizes the, the noun hierarchy as kin terms, you know, kinship terminology as most likely to take um, or, or to be a separate category for a split in the hierarchy. So kin terms first, then any human, then animates with a possible distinction between lower and higher animates and then count nouns and then abstractions. Right. And um, that was mentioned, uh, Corbett mentioned that too. Um, and he said like the best case for that was like Maori. But even then, like not all of the the nouns on the list that take the number marking, I think it was either it's the, these are the ones that take obligatory number marking or something, but not all the nouns on that list are kinship terms. Right. So it's not it's more likely, but it's not necessarily going to be a clean divide if it's kinship terms that you're talking about. Because um, so if, if that if you use that as your divider, maybe prepare to make it a little messy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, another thing that Dixon observes is if you have a small number of nouns that take obligatory number marking, there's a good chance at least some of them will be suppletive. That is, there will be an entirely different stem for the singular versus the plural form. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, an, another thing to make sense of, it's very, very common in pronouns for them to be, like, suppletive. Right. To, to have different forms for singular and plural, uh, for a different number marking. Uh, there, you know... The examples like Mandarin, where it's completely re- regular, you're adding just a suffix. That's quite rare. Kind, yeah, yeah, pretty rare. Not unheard of, but pretty rare. Um, so, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you can do it. But maybe if you're making a lot of conlangs, try to use it sparingly. Yeah. Um, numbers also usually marked on question words and demonstratives um, with the proviso that the question word what um, is more likely to behave like a noun than a pronoun. So it might follow your local nouns. So in a language that has no number marking on nouns at all, you might still get lots of clues about number if you're using demonstratives or question words and the like. Um, In addition to possibilities on the verb. Okay. Is this a good time for me to talk about the pronouns and, and minimal augmented systems? Yes, please do. Okay. So, Pronouns may make different number distinction than plain nouns do. We've talked about that before, and that's really obvious in something like Chinese, where basically nouns almost never take number marking, uh, and some can't. Um, but another possibility, apart from singular and plural, is minimal and augmented. Uh, and this is a really interesting thing. So instead of having first, second, and third person in your singular column, let's add something under the first person, let's add one plus two. That is what some of us would call a dual inclusive first person. That is you and me. So we'll call that the minimal comment, the, the minimal 
number in the first column. So I, you and me, you, he, she. Then in the augmented column, we have an exclusive first person, an inclusive first person, and a second person and a third person plural. So some languages, I think Cherokee does this, where you can either make this really complicated chart that has a dual, but there's only one thing that occurs in the dual, um, and it's exclusive, um, or you can simplify to minimal augmented, where what you would normally consider your singular column does have one column that refers to two entities, um, but the pattern is maybe fairly obvious about the relationship between the minimal column and the augmented column. It simplifies the descriptions of pronouns for uh, a good number of languages. So it's worth considering that for your pronouns as well. I don't know. I don't know about uh, Cherokee. Ho-Chunk has that. Um, In our, in our lessons, it's like really weird because they describe it as, uh, oh, it's the, the inclusive dual versus inclusive plural. But yeah, it's basically just, the minimal augmented. Right. And, and that, yeah, that always looks weird if you have no duals anywhere else in the language except for that one pronoun. That, yeah. That seems unmotivated. So it's and, with minimal yeah. augmented. Yeah. It makes, it makes sense to think of it that way because if you have an inclusive uh, first person, it has to be two individuals in that category. You can't, you can't have just one person because then it would be either first person or second person. So, yeah, the, it's it's just it's sort of a logical, pragmatic result of uh, having an inclusive, I, I would think. But there are, of course, languages where um, you do have an, an inclusive that is always just marked as plural or whatever, like uh, Mandarin Zanman is just plural. Um, so there's another choice, right? If you've got, if you've got inclusives, are you going to do this minimal augmented thing, or are you just always going to mark them for number? Either way works, right? The reason I think um, Cherokee might have it is because um, Britton Watkins' language Sinyanda for his film um, contains such a system, and I don't know where I, else he would have picked it up. Yeah, I, I don't know. We 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 uh, I need to. Okay. Listeners, you can do some homework and look up Cherokee because <laughs> uh, I don't know. I kn- I know that Cherokee has an an inclusive, but I didn't. I don't know. I don't know if it's minimal augmented. So, okay, moving on. Okay, we have some things to talk about with verbs. Right. This is very interesting. So, um, ignoring the question of just sort of person marking on the verb, the verb stem itself. Um, might have changes for number where the stem will change if intransitive verbs, usually it's the object that it agrees with. With intransitives, it's usually the subject, but not always. Um, and very often the stems are suppletive. That is, there is a completely different stem for singular subjects versus plural subjects. And you can even enjoy great fun with a language like Navajo, which sometimes have singular, dual, and plural suppletion. Um, oh, my. <laughs> right. So if two people are walking, it's different than if one person or three three or more people are walking. Um, you may have a very small number of these in a language, or you might have a few dozen. Um, really common 
semantic or verbs are posture verbs, sit, stand, lie, put is common, enter, go, die or be dead, kill, and maybe a few statives like be big or be small. These are the most likely um, to have this sort of suppletion. Yeah, I think just a general rule with suppletion is it's usually a small set. Right, it's usually a small um, set. Um, and, and just, yeah. for, for, for anything, any any morphological category that's suppletive, it's going to be some small set. Um, so like, yeah, go ahead. Uh, like, you know, you know, all of your personal pronouns can easily be, be suppletive, but you can't have too many nouns be suppletive or right. too many verbs. Right. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, so that's interesting. It's found all over the planet. I've mostly seen it in North America, but it pops up like, you know, in the Caucasus and East Asia. So it, it really does happen everywhere. Um, just, uh, with restraint. Uh, do we want to move on to the fine distinctions? Yeah, let's, let's cover those a little bit and then I'll talk a little bit about weirdnesses with agreement. Okay. So, so far we've just been talking about plurality as though this is a sing single idea, but there may be more subtle distinctions in kinds of plurals. Um, and there are basically three. You can have a collective plural, a distributive plural, or an associative plural. The collective refers to a lot of something or a heap of something. Usually only used of inanimates, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it might be that your collective plural and your plain plural are the same thing, but you might have completely different ways of marking them. Historically, this is interesting um, because you might have a language with no number marking develop one of these, and then that becomes the standard plural over time. For example, the broken plurals of Arabic are thought to originally be collective nouns. Um, right. And that certainly explains why, for example, inanimate plural nouns in Arabic take feminine singular verb forms. Right. Um, we should we should mention, okay, we had collective used a different way earlier, and now we're talking about a collective plural in, in a different context. Uh, There's just a terminology alert, like collective can mean like three or four things in, in linguistics. Some of them are things do having to do with number. You could have like a, a derivational collective. It's it's a little bit of a, a minefield. Just make sure when you read about something that's a quote unquote collective that you understand, like, you know, look at the examples and the explanation and understand exactly what collective means in this context. Right. Um, another possibility is a distributive plural, which contains the sense of here and there or among several people. I have a link to a paper about the Navajo da prefix uh, is a preverb, um, is usually called a distributive, although often it just looks like a normal plain plural, although there are circumstances where it clearly has a distributive sense. And then finally, there's the associative plural, which just where you, when you add this, it typically goes on. Uh, humans, um, and it means that person and people associated with them. Them, you know, X and X's crew. Uh, one language with a separate uh, associative plural, for example, is Hungarian. Right. Um, and then, for fun, Central Alaskan Yupik has both a dual, dual and a plural associative. Please tell me that the dual associ associative is common when talking about couples. I don't know. That would be that. Uh, we we maybe we'll have to 
uh, find a Yupik speaker and, 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 and ask about that. And um, there is a, a surprisingly hefty um, Walls chapter on the associative plural. They found it interesting enough. And there's lots of interesting ways that it could be marked um, mm. as opposed to different from your just normal plural marking. My favorite is for Plains Cree, which for an associative uses a singular noun phrase, but a plural verb. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Right. So there, there's lots of possibilities for, for how to mark that. And the, the Walls chapter explains it in a little bit more detail and gives some yeah. examples. Well, um, we'll mention that a little bit in, in a minute, um, too, because I want to go back and uh, talk about agreement for a little bit. Um, so most most commonly we're familiar with number agreeing on verbs uh, in uh, if you look more broadly in Indo-European, you have it agreeing on uh, demonstratives, articles, you know, determiners, basically, and um, adjectives. Um, it can agree on a lot of different things, but um, there are a lot, a few thing ways that it can be a little bit um, interesting in terms of, of what happens. Uh, one thing that can happen is that you can have like a default number. So let's say you're having um, agreement on verbs for number. What happens when you have a um, a clause? Clauses don't really have number. So, uh, uh, you know, you have a choice and you see languages that do default to singular and languages that default to plural in that case. So uh, let me give an example of what George is talking about. Um, when you, you can... Uh... English uses ing verbs to be, you know, these verbal nouns. So you could say something like, talking to him pains me. Right. English, and English uses you, singular. You, you use singular. We, we've taken the phrase talking to him, um, which is a phrase, and the verb agreement is singular. Um, George is saying some languages might take a plural. Right, right. Um, other things, um, so this... This is something that occurs in some dialects of English, um, is that um, you can say things like the committee have decided, the the band are playing. Uh, that's It's weird to me, I'm sure it's weird to William, since we're both uh, American English speakers, but other parts of the English-speaking world, British English, I think New Zealand English, they do do this for like singular nouns, that refer to groups of people can take plural agreement. Corbett calls these corporate nouns. Uh, they're often called collective again, because everybody just decides that they want to use the word collective. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, you can call it corporate or whatever, but um, it's present in, in English, but it is attested in other languages and even in non-Indo-European languages. So uh, that's an option. Um, there are, um, talking back to the associative plural again, I think, William, you sort of mentioned this, but you, you can have cases where you have a, a singular, uh, um, now let's say we're, we're having, uh, the verb agree with the subject and number, you could have a singular subject with plural marking on the verb to mean, right, X and his associates, 
or X in X in their associates, whatever um, X in her associates. It's just um, that's you know another way of doing an associative plural is to sort of quote unquote break the the verb agreement. Conjoined phrases drive syntacticians up a wall. Um, at least generative syntacticians because they don't know how to deal with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, the, there's there's many different theories, but it's it's sort of uh, it's sort of funny trying to because I've I I I uh, did my first prelim on this for Spanish and and it's you know it's it's a lot of um, finagling to try to get that to work into a framework, but basically. If you have a conjoined phrase, so Bill and Mary slept or whatever, uh, you have uh, basically two choices. You can have it have that verb or whatever is agreeing, whatever the the tar- the, um, the target is that agrees, and um, that can agree with only one of the conjuncts. And almost always you're going to be like the nearest conjunct. So let's say it's agreeing with the subject. The subject is before and the last conjunct is what it's going to agree with. There's maybe one example of a language where it agrees with a further conjunct, like the first conjunct with the verb being at the end. Uh, But more likely it's going to be like the nearer one. The other one is the one that is standard in English is which is. You just agree with all the conjuncts. So you take them. You got okay. So you've got two singular um, uh, things joined with and. So if you have a tool, you can do dual with it. If you got if you if you only got plural, that's plural. Basically, you what count up all the things that you're conjoining uh, in terms of you know um, how many things that semantically represents, and then you do the verb agreement based on that. So those are the two options. And really, this is more like a game of like frequency because it's not necessarily going to be that a language always does one or the other. It might be like a language does, you know, will, uh, will do the agreement with everything more often than not. Um, the other thing is um, uh, noun phrases that are quantified. So, like, if you have a number before the noun phrase, uh, like three women, uh, you know, uh, three women went to town, uh, then you might – three women go to town, then you might actually not have agreement on the verb. Uh, I think there are also languages that actually don't do the number marking in those cases too. Right. Is that right? Yes, yeah. there are some languages where once an actual number is spoken, um, number agreement is tossed out the window. Right. Not just number agreement. But, but you, sorry, number marking on the noun is no longer necessary. If you say three dogs, why do you yeah. need to say that it's plural? You know it's plural. So three dog. Right. So it and it applies to agreement as well. Is sometimes sometimes you don't need agreement when you have the actual number there. Um, There's a funny thing that happens in ancient Greek sometimes. It's kind of number. It's kind of weird. Where Basically, you can have a third-person subject with a first-person plural verb, 
And that means me and so-and-so did something. So you could say, you know, Bob, we went to the store means Bob and I went to the store. Yeah. <laughs> okay. With, with no need to say and I. That's uh, sufficiently marked on the verb. So that's enough. That's, that's, uh, yeah. So that's an interesting one. Uh, the last thing is this, this applies to agreement, but it can also apply in other places where you get at a plural that's like an honorific plural. Uh, so you might have like just a singular person. But because of status or something, they get plural agreement on the verb as an honorific thing. Um, uh, I'm just talking about verbs, but it could be on anything. Uh, it's similar to what happens also in pronouns in that very often when you have a familiar formal distinction in pronouns, that formal pronoun, the, you know, the TV distinction, that formal pronoun is often a plural, and that's why English lost the the number distinction in second person pronouns because we had the for, we had you being plural became the 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 formal and it got overused and now we have to invent new plural ones <laughs> right because thou got chucked out the window yes but right. I mean. In many languages, not just in Europe, but, you know, obviously throughout like um, like the, the European languages, you you have this happening. A lot of the 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 formal pronoun, the formal second persons are um, not all of them, but a lot of them are uh, plurals. But also um, like in Mandarin, the formal second person nin is a contraction of nimen. Uh, so it it which is the the usual plural. So it was it's like a historical plural. I think Tagalog did the same thing. It has a, a plural that is you um, that also is formal. So it's pretty common for that that kind of thing to happen if you end up with with the the familiar formal distinction in pronouns. So right, and there are other grammatical categories that can interact with number. There are some languages in which all number distinctions are obliterated in a negative clause, for example. Um, in pronouns, in the non-singular, some person distinctions may collapse. So it's not that unusual to see a single second and third person plural marker, for example. And as we know from Indo-European languages, number and noun class and gender may interact in complex ways. For example, there's one language in Australia... Laragia or Laragia, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, where it has um, basically four noun classes. The first noun class is used for humans and some higher animals, um, but the only class that has a singular plural distinction is the first. And in fact, when you're referring to, to, to animals, you always use the, the singular form, um, and this marking, you know, pervades the language. So your number can interact in, in other ways. Besides just number. Uh, for example, in uh, plenty of Indo-European languages, the number of case distinctions available collapse in the plural. Um, so there are eight cases in Sanskrit, um, but many of them have the same marker in the dual and plural. Right. 
So I think that's about all that we have. Did you have other I, things to mention? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of like weird things that popped up. I think I mentioned this earlier, but I just wanted to say, uh, apparently you can get a little bit nitpicky about what plural actually means. Um, in English, we use plural when there's more than one. So you can say like one and a half days. Apparently in French, it has to be two or more. That's neat. So, so yeah, your your plural might have a, just a subtle difference in meaning. Um, uh, the well, maybe we'll ask Christoph if that's true, but uh, apparently the, that's uh, a difference. Um, and another thing is uh, we didn't talk much about historical sources for number, um, other than you know dual and trial, you know understandably come from two and three often. And often if you have a dual trial and uh, Pockle, that Pockle might also come from a four. Um, the Another, um, an example that we had, I think the language is called Malakis. Um, I, I am not sure that I uh, wrote that down correctly, but uh, it had originally singular, dual, trial, and plural, the trial became a new plural. And then the old plural is still there. It's used as uh, what we mentioned, one of these greater plurals. Uh, so like, you know, so you now have singular, dual, plural, and bigger plural. Uh, so, right. And this is one of those situations then that our, our markedness hierarchy is broken for historical reasons. Mm -hmm. where, where the simple plural, because trials are likely to be more complex than simple plurals, there's going to be a period of time in the language where their, their plain plural um, is more marked than the, the, than, than the greater plural, which is a little bit special. Yeah, that could be. I don't know for this particular language. I just have that little fact written down. Uh, but that's um, definitely something that could happen when, when that happens. So... Uh, there you go. That's another uh, little wrinkle. So uh, that's all that I have, too. Uh, I think um, definitely um, just we've listed out your options. You can go simple. You can go real complicated, um, uh, you know, or you can do nothing at all. It's like <laughs> anything in conlanging. You can you can just ignore it or you can go all out. Um, I have to say okay. that if you're not used to using these complex number systems, it will cause you pains um, as you start to use the language or translate. Um, for example, not V has singular, dual, trial, and plural. Um, and it also makes an inclusive and exclusive person distinction. And while I was capable at the height of my Navi studies of producing not V fairly fluently, I was constantly bungling number and inclusivity. Yeah. Because I'm simply not used to attending to, for me, plural is more than one. Right. And um, it's a little hard to get good test examples if you're looking for English uh, test examples to, to do that. Because, like, yeah, you might run into things where people specify the actual number, but then you... You also, like, you know, if you look at the, the conlang test sentences, 
you you're you're looking at them and you're thinking, okay, well, uh, this is a plural in English. I can translate this, you know, several different ways depending on exactly how many people that represents. Right. Yeah. So, um, and the more complex your number system is, the 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 more of those options you're gonna have. Uh, but you know, them's the breaks. <laughs> you got more distinctions than than you you might even have trouble testing them all. But that's the general idea of um, number. How um, what you can do with number, what options you have in all the the different places. So for all of you, um, especially if you're you know starting a new conlang. Uh, Number is probably one of the first things you want to get down. So go sit down, think about, okay, how many number distinctions do I want in this language? Uh, exactly, you know, how is the agreement going to work? What, How is it going to be marked? Just think it through, and uh, I hope to, to see some interesting number um, systems come out of this. William, any final thoughts? Nope. All right. So, thank you all for listening, and I'm going to say happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find Conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richards.